Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership coach, a mastermind facilitator, a best-selling author, and a speaker. I love taking these nonprofit leadership topics on the road or into your Zoom room. So if you need someone for your next conference or workshop, check out my new speaking page at PattonMcDowell.com for more information. Now, I know you're going to enjoy a fantastic conversation that I had in this episode with Naisha DeWitt, who was very successful in her own right as a professional, as an educator, but she felt a calling to go back and serve her community around a cause and, frankly, a challenge that she experienced herself in her high school days. And now she's doing something about it. And I think you're really going to appreciate the organization she has built, co-founded, in the Bay Area. It's called Oakland Natives Give Back. Now, of course, it is doing great work, and you're going to enjoy learning more about it. But you're also going to appreciate the practical advice Naisha offers and the lessons she's learned uh, around raising funds and building a team and engaging her community, all of these things that are critical to your nonprofit leadership. Don't forget to check out the show notes. This is episode number 182. Just go to the new podcast page at patmcdowell.com and you'll find all of the resources we discussed as well as more information on Naisha and the great work she's doing through Oakland Natives Give Back. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Naisha DeWitt. Naisha, thank you for joining me on the path. Oh, thank you so much, Patton, for having me. Well, I'm excited about this conversation. You've had a wonderful leadership journey, and you bring experiences from multiple fronts, but you are in the midst of running a complex nonprofit organization, and so your executive skills and lessons, I think, are going to really resonate with our listeners who are either in leadership roles, you know, trying to do better, or they want to be a leader and follow your path. And so I know you're going to offer insight uh, on both of those fronts. But let's start with something. I bet you have these conversations with your colleagues. You know, what's the biggest challenge you're dealing with right now? Is there I'm, I'm guessing there may be more than one. But is there one particular challenge that, you know, as a nonprofit leader, you're having to address right now? Yes, um, I would say the biggest challenge we're facing or I'm having to face right now would be staffing. Um Post-pandemic, it's just very interesting and nuanced (laughs) on many levels. Um, And then I would also just say that it's difficult when you're trying to gel or rebuild your organization after having to um, have so many changes with staffing and and the members on your team, rebuilding in a way that's intentional and that is thoughtful of folks who are experiencing mental health challenges as they come back um, from being sheltered and are having distance or virtual experiences. I think those are challenges. When I say this, the latter, it's more because of the fact that they are um, just trying to get everyone to gel and be on the same page and buy in to what we're trying to do so we can scale and grow. Um, so having all of that, having lots of new people, trying to recruit new people, all of that is just a little bit challenging. I, I, would say. Can, I can only imagine. And as you said, in the virtual kind of experience we all had 
that made it more difficult. And even though we're coming back, are you in somewhat of a hybrid environment for your team? Is that, or are you, everybody is generally back in person, but you're still trying to fill spots? Is that part of the challenge? We're actually fully staffed. Um, the reason why I say it's a challenge was was finding, you know, folks who were ready to come back. You know, there is this new expectation that working virtually is is acceptable. And I think that, you know, we, we're definitely fully in the office. Most of our team is, we work every day in the office. We have some offshore staff, support staff that supports us in their um, offshore, like I said, but everyone else works inside the office. Um, and it was difficult to get people to feel like, yeah, they were like, can I work hybrid or, you know, a couple days from home? And I was like, no, that's just not going to work for our organization because we really want to feel your presence. We want you to feel our presence. We want there to be camaraderie and teamwork and not having to set a meeting every time you want to stop by and talk to someone. So I just find that in our, with the work that we're doing and the way that we need to support one another, it's extremely important that we have that in-person experience so that it's fully, so we can fully, you know, ex- you just have one another um, <laughs> and, you know, be able to have access to one another without setting an appointment. But you're finding some folks, again, coming out of the pandemic are, are just not ready to do that. And that's made it harder to find the kind of talent that you need. Uh, I, I hear this from other executive directors, this challenge, and I wondered kind of how you've tried to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, we have had that challenge. We had that challenge earlier on, but when we, we are very explicit in our job postings that this is an in-person job, it is yeah. not hybrid. There is no exception for that because most of the time, uh, you know, some of our our um, work is happening in the field or at schools, and so um, there, you know, for that reason alone, you can't be you in to. Tennessee. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we. Yeah. we locally and we have the expectation that folks work in the office and it was a diff- it was difficult at first because people weren't comfortable coming out of, out of um, their, the comforts of their home and they've been able to do everything that they did even in nonprofit from wherever they were in their comfy socks um I think that was the biggest <laughs> challenge when I say recruiting it was just having people come back into the office and deal with human beings that were not related to them you know because imagine. Yes you know, having all of your close family and friends are the only ones that can talk to you or touch you or, you know, be in your space. Obviously there were some, some concerns that were valid, right. You know, they're, they like, who have you been around and yeah, who the healthcare. Yeah. over the weekend and, and, you know, and, and were you exposed to COVID? And so since we've moved a little bit beyond that, most people are a little bit more they're careful obviously. And, 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 and they concern themselves for others well-being, but we've moved past some of that initial fear, but still people are, you know, the things that they're able to do at home, whether it's, you know, have a shot in the morning or, you know, do anything like they can't do that and come into the office setting. So it's just a little bit of a, of an adjustment, I would say for people coming back after COVID and staffing and finding the right staff who were committed, who aren't, you know, trying to what do they call it quiet quitting and all yeah, that yeah right exactly and it, well yeah. i want to get back to that because i think you manage that beautifully and despite these challenges and their lessons that we can all learn but, but let me go to this first before we talk about your journey talk about the organization for our listeners that don't know about oakland natives give back exactly what is the work you do most of our work is centered around empowering young people 
we fund and incubate exciting ideas, innovative ideas around how to combat some serious issues we face in education and in in the lives of young people in general. Um, Most of our work right now is centered around chronic absenteeism or increasing the days that students go to school and empowering girls to be problem solvers and um, innovators and thinkers of the future. So those are the two pillars. And we also have some a philanthropic arm where we fund small or emerging nonprofit organizations in our community. Yeah, I love that. And I guess as the, the title implies, you're in Oakland, California. And are, are you part of other networks, Naisha, or is this, you know, an independent organization just there in the Oakland community? We're just here in Oakland. Um, we, we started in 2008 with a backpack giveaway. And the main um, focus and impetus of that is that I dropped out of high school when I was in the 10th grade. And I realized that becoming a uh, fully functioning and stable individual in our society, it requires an education, right? Or a high school diploma. So part of the pitfall and the barrier and obstacle for me achieving my high school um, graduation was the fact that I did, I used to cut class every single day. And so we, um, as an adult, after, you know, getting my doctoral degree and, and doing some other, being a master of teaching and all the other stuff that I did, I was like, you know what, we need to go back and help families understand how important it is for students to go to school and how they can overcome generational poverty just by getting a high school diploma and how much it decreases incarceration or in contact with law enforcement or increases reading levels and all the, all the other indicators that, are impacted by chronic absenteeism, just going to school can alleviate some of the challenges that we face when people are adults. Right. You have a remarkable academic journey made even more impressive given the challenges you faced as a high school student, right? In terms of absenteeism, the things you're trying to address now, which leads perfectly, I guess, to the question. Yeah. How did you get into the work now? You, You could have gone in any number of career paths. What brought you to nonprofit leadership? Yeah. That is a really good question, especially when you think of what when um, I would say people of color lead nonprofit organizations, those who have passion for a community that they either grew up in or, or a community of people that they are they realize are marginalized. I would say for me. Um, the number one reason was simply I just wanted to give back to my community. I felt that, you know. Sometimes I felt a little guilty for some of the things that I used to do when I was younger. I was not necessarily um, a, a contributor to our our community. I was more of a um, withdrawer. I didn't deposit money. <laughs> right. And so I was thinking, and with my friends, I was like, you know, we moved away. We we graduated from one of my co-founders. We graduated from Cal and moved away and we're helping our um, significant others with their foundations, but we weren't doing anything in our community. So I was like, we need to give back and they need to see black women leaders, um, black women philanthropists who have a um, commitment to some place that they grew up instead of everyone. There's this math exodus, right? So there's so many people who grow up in communities and they're like, I can't wait to leave. I can't wait to get out of here. You know? So we, uh, it's like, we have to give back. We have to come back to our community. And because both of us dropped out of high school in Oakland in the 10th grade, we realized that this is the place and this is the time. And that was the issue we wanted to focus on is chronic absenteeism and the pitfalls that students can 
fall into um, and the despair that families can experience if their children don't graduate from high school. Yeah, it, it's so impressive that you're attacking a, a situation you understood at a personal level. And yeah. you brought your experiences in now back to Leisha. I'm curious, though, Naisha, when you first started, the cause was noble, appropriate, wonderful. What was it like, though, when you first started as a nonprofit leader? Anything surprise you or, you know, were there early challenges for others, I guess, listening who think, you know what, I want to go start something like you did. What lessons would you share with them? Yeah, I would say the biggest challenge was getting people to want to invest in something that was a passion that you have. Yeah. Right. It's like, yeah. you know, when 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 um, people who are from communities start nonprofit organizations, it's always an assumption that they should have the money to fund their ideas. You know, um, when you come from uh, when you're not rich or wealthy or you don't have family funds or family wealth and you just you have an idea, you're like, OK, wait, I want to feed the homeless or whatever it is. It's it's people expect you to fund that concept and get having co-investment from people or having people buy into your strategy and methodology for approaching the solution is very difficult unless you have um, a track record of some sort. And the value that people place on track record is different, especially when you're from the community that you're serving. So there were times when people would say, you know, good job, you know, you're doing such a great job for the people in your community and, you know, add a girl or whatever. But I would be like, yeah, we we would love to have your support. You know, it would always come with a him and a ha instead of a check, the screeching of a check, right? You know, pen on a piece of paper, writing a check. And I found that that's also oftentimes because people think that if you're from a community, it's your duty to, it's your job, or you're not a missionary yeah. you're not coming in to save people that don't look like you. It's your job to save the people in your community. Right. And it's, that's not true. You know, I think it's everyone's job. It's, it's a, it's a societal issue. And it's something that we all need to contribute to whether we are from the community or from other places, we should still be valued and given the support that we need to do the work. This is work that's very difficult. Not everyone can do it. Not everyone is cut out for it, but someone like myself who had the experience themselves, who was, has a, you know, who was a teacher, who was a professor, an adjunct professor, and then who's had children who have had experiences with um, chronic absenteeism. My level of expertise is different than most people. So my, you know, the fact that I can solve it, this problem or work toward the solution should be given the same amount of support that you would give someone who, you know, has a ton of wealth, who has, you know, a ton of support from their friends and family. Um, Financially, I should have the same support and I shouldn't be expected to pull money out of my pocket like I've had to do in the past. And I think that would be the biggest challenge for folks who are starting their own nonprofit organization is how do you draw the line between you self-funding and getting the support that you need from the people who are benefit factors of the support that you provide to the community that you're supporting. Is it getting better? Do you feel like has the message sunk in from those early days when it was a fundraising struggle? How would you describe from then to now? It's still a struggle. It's still a struggle, but it's, I think that what folks have said to me is that once you get your first check, all the checks are easy after that. Like once you get (laughs) someone to believe in you and you get a grant, then it's easier after that. I don't know that I I find it easier. I think I'm more hopeful for sure um, because 
sometimes it's, it's, it's really lonely when you're like, does anyone else know that this works or does anyone believe it? Or should I just give up? There were times that I wanted to give up. I was like, forget this nonprofit stuff. I'm about to, you know, start a company, you know, yeah, and, do something else, right. And build wealth. And that's another thing you mentioned. It's like, there are lots of things that m- most of us could do with our lives. You know, there is no, um, there's a misconception when people of color are in nonprofit organizations is that we can't do something else with our time that we have to, this is what we do because we have no other choice. I'm pretty sure that I could get a job in any of the, you know, companies in Silicon Valley, you know, could have gone down many pathways to become a, be the professional that I, I am and contribute to other industry. Right. But this is what I do. I'm an entrepreneur at heart, honestly. So Starting a nonprofit is just one other um, entrepreneurial expression, but I believe that, um, you know, like I said, the journey can be long and hard and, and it and it can seem like it should be a lot easier than it is. And I feel like at some point it will become a lot easier than it has been. Yeah, but it's hard. It's hard work. But it is hard. Right. And that's a lesson I think I know you want our listeners to hear. And but I hope on those days when you're like, you know what, I think maybe I should do something else. You have to see progress right in the young women you're serving or tell me about that. I mean, do you do you feel like, yeah, I do see progress in the mission that we're trying to accomplish? I do. Um, And most of, again, our work is we work with very severely chronic absent students in Oakland Unified School District currently and um, high school students and elementary school students. And we also work with girls. And I think that the opportunity um, that doesn't escape me, it's, I mean, or, or the thought that doesn't escape me is that we have such a deep opportunity to support and help young people thrive. And you know, and and I also often wish, like, gosh, if I when I was younger, I wish I had a program like the one that we offer, right? Yeah, so, yeah, and and so when we see young people who graduate from high school, or when we're passing out backpacks and school supplies and shoes, and families are extremely appreciative because we've removed some barriers that they would have had for their students starting school on time, or when we have young people who you know, may have been home homeless if we had not given them uh, the cash grants that we award. Um, and they say that I want to give my award because we give away $500 to students for having nearly perfect attendance. That's nice. one of our programs. And yep. so they say, I want to take this money and pay my mom's rent, you know, because they know that their family is facing turmoil and fi- financial turmoil. Yep. That's what keeps me going. You know, when we are passing out checks and giving stuff away, removing barriers um, to students having success in school, awarding and acknowledging students and families for a job well done, getting their students to school. That's the stuff that ma- motivates me and makes me feel like, you know what? I guess I was born to do this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And like, you, gracious, I guess I was born to do this. <laughs> and and you roll up your sleeves one more day, right? I guess oh, sometimes sure. it just, it feels, but in, and you make a great point and you know better than anyone that the issues of absenteeism, I guess they're not just like uh, these young people don't just don't like school, but they're dealing with all kinds of issues, right? And is, I guess that's how you're attacking this problem. Yeah, there are all kinds of issues, but most of it is rooted in poverty. Um, And so when you think of whether it's they don't have clean laundry, they're, you know, they have, they're living in temporary housing situations, they have transportation issues, 
food insecurity. Um, you know, they are having to track commute too far. You know, one thing, it's one thing to not have enough money to get on the bus, right? Um, then there's something altogether different if you live 45 minutes away and your parent doesn't feel like getting you up because they're not going to work that day. And right. they have you know, so there's housing, you know, expensive housing here in Oakland. So people move further out, but their parents work locally or having to care for siblings, which means that their parents don't necessarily have enough money to pay for childcare for their students, you know, and the list goes on and on. Some students are working right now because they have to bring an income into the house and it's better. Their parents will be like, yeah, they can't go to school because, you know, they have a health issue and they're like, okay, well, we want to come meet with a student. Well, they have to go to work and say, wait, 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 wait. They can go to work, but they can't go to school. Right. Like, you know I'm right. Saying? So it's like, so some of the things that we do, especially with our, um, some of our cash grants or our incentives, it is really putting money in their pockets and helping them, you know, to overcome some of those barriers and challenges. And again, like I said, it's all rooted. Most of it is rooted in poverty um, or, you know, or things related or surrounding poverty. So it's in a yeah, way hard. I mean, it makes it very complicated when you're thinking of something that is such a big issue. That totally makes sense. And yeah, hard to focus on school when those other issues, poverty induced challenges, uh, these young people are facing, their families are facing, and that's how you address it. I love that. It, so there's the individual grant program, which is certainly an incentive and support for someone who might otherwise struggle. Uh, and you mentioned too, you're also funding other nonprofits. Is that an mm -hmm. attempt to help in terms of the wraparound services that these families need or talk about your programs in terms of funding other nonprofits? Yeah. So a lot of times we find ourselves in competitive situations those, especially smaller, non smaller nonprofit organizations, and especially those who are led by um, minorities or black led organizations or black or brown. And, and, you know, because like I said earlier, there are times when not only are we, viewed as uh like we're not professional our organizations aren't professional um we're also expected to fund it out of our pocket right yeah, so yeah so i understand all too well what that feels like so we also we have a funding source that that allows us or enables or sort of expects us to to share it forward so that's what we do um and most of the organizations are smaller organizations but they have a mission that's different from ours like they may be helping folks who are formerly incarcerated adult, formerly incarcerated adults that yeah. have children, or they, it may be a nonprofit organization that's doing parent engagement or another nonprofit organization that is helping feed the homeless. Those aren't, those are things that sort of have are underlying um, influences on chronic absenteeism, but those aren't the things that we're working directly to resolve. So it takes a village. We all yes, have to have yes. our contribution. So rather than having us go and try to get funds to compete with them and try to take on their programs to help support, um, to help fund ours so we can just keep the lights on, we try to support them and help them continue to do the work that they do in the lane that they're in so that we can all, you know, sort of drive down the same path to help the students that we're in families we're supporting in the community. Yeah. I hope funders recognize the power of your collaborative spirit um, because I mean, I know that takes effort um, to work with other organizations. You said sometimes there's a competitive edge to that community and we're all trying to raise money. And, and it sounds like you've kind of broached that barrier. Have you found a, a peer group? 
as a nonprofit leader, have you found a peer group amongst other nonprofit leaders? And or do you feel sometimes that you're isolated in that role? Well, I'm I feel isolated. There are several um coalitions, I think, here in the Bay Area. I'm not actually a part of it. I have a executive coach who has a peer group who's established a peer group of nonprofit organizations we meet on a monthly basis, and that's super helpful. Um, because I get to hear challenges that they have and share challenges that we have. Um, but it is a very, you know, um, it is a lonely place. You know, like I said, I just, it sounds so cliche to say it's lonely at the top and all right, of that, right, but it, right. it's just different because I mean, we, we are in a building the way um, our organization is housed in a building that will have a lot of black led organizations in one space. Right. So about nine of the, of us in there. And, and we've talked a little bit about like, let's come together and support one another because some of us have different funding sources and have different relationships with different individuals or funders or things like that. It It's important for us to network, but yeah. it is difficult because again, you know, there are times when we may be on competitive sides of a, of a funding request or a proposal request, or, you know, it may not be a situation where we can collaborate or, you know, have someone join us. But we try. I mean, most of us here in our community, especially those that will be in this building together, we've we've all we all have a commitment to trying to support one another as best we can. But um for years before this happened, it was extremely difficult. I mean, whether really? it's like, imagine having a, I'm a teacher, you know what I mean? That was my background before I went to business school this last year, um, last couple of years during the pandemic, I was like, I got to get better at business. Cause I'm yeah. actually running a business Yes, and I scale it. I have to know how to do that. So I went back and got another degree, but prior to that, I mean, you know, there is, a, there is some truth in the myth that just because you have a heart to give, doesn't mean that you should be in the business of creating a business to give. Right. Yes. And so, um, there are some there is some professional development that it would be essential to 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 a nonprofit leader for them to kind of go through or put themselves through so they can understand the complexities of human resources and accounting and um compliance and stuff like that that's a that is real you know what i mean and and since we've had our organization it hasn't been out of compliance once because I made it a point to hire the right support um the right attorney the right um accountant you know what i mean because that kind of stuff is is you cannot start have a business without the right professionals to support you that's so so true yeah no matter how no matter how great your cause is as you say nice it's still a business right we have to run it uh, and maintain our existence and of course that's why i'm grateful for your insight because you bring an authenticity to this discussion because I think, and I bet you've had friends too that think, "Oh, that must be nice. You work in nonprofit. It must be, <laughs> you know, must be happy, feel good stuff every day." And it's hard work, right? Oh my and, and god! And well, let me ask you this because I bet there's listeners thinking, "All right, I, I get it. You know, I understand the reality of this work." Broadly speaking, how do you spend your time? I mean, clearly you're having to do fundraising. You're I guess doing programs, strategy, business, but generally speaking, how do you spend your time as an executive for a nonprofit? Most of my day is honestly spent dealing work, meeting people, meeting with people, whether it's internal meetings with the staff or programming team or the executive team or external meetings with um, potential funders um, or 
folks who are supporting our work. You know, um, my day consists of just of meetings, no direct service for the most part, but just right. meeting right. strategy and helping the staff overcome barriers, talking through staffing challenges. You know, we have a human resources consultant that we have to talk about issues that we're facing with staff. Um, but, you know, I really love what I do. And I'll, in spite in spite of the fact that most of my <laughs> day is spent with talking to people <laughs> um, and rather than, you know, I really, I wish I could honestly, I wish I could spend more time on strategy on yeah. things that are progressive um, and move the organization forward. But there are just some times that you have to establish processes and, and, you know, get procedures together to make yes. sure that do it or capture how it was done, you know, really professionalizing the organization because smaller nonprofit organizations, I think we spend so little time planning. You know what I mean? We just, because we're bootstrapping it and we don't necessarily have time to take a month off to plan or a week off to plan. um, We just kind of go with it. You know what I mean? We kind of just are running around with our hair on fire, trying yeah, to make sure that we stay to. ahead of things. And that's not necessarily the way I like to, I, I intend to approach this next few years of our existence. You know what I mean? We, we have to, I've spent, I've been spending a lot of time encouraging everyone to plan, to document, to, you know, go back and, you know, revisit what you plan to do and talk about why that didn't work. That's right. very difficult to do in a nonprofit setting because people just aren't used to that. You know what I mean? I got that from the business world where we're talking about learning loops and, and what did you learn? What did you think was going to happen? What actually happened and what would you do different next time? And then kind of pushing that kind of thought forward. Um, Because I think it'll, it'll just make things easier for us next year when we do the same work. How old is the organization nation? How old is it now? Oh, that's really a good question because I would (laughs) say we were, I would say we came up with the name in 2008. Okay. Initially started doing this work um, per, as as full time employees in 2016. Yeah, it's early stage, right? Yes. In so many respects. Yes, and very impressive much. how far you've come in a relatively short amount of time. It, it and, and as you have brought people on to hopefully join you on this mission and see your vision, what are you looking for? If I'm out there listening and say, "Man, I'd love to work for that organization," what do you look for when you're hiring talent? That is such a good question. <laughs> that is a good question, but that one is, that's tough because, you know, I, I want to work with people who are interested in serving someone outside of themselves, right. serving people right. who are outside of themselves. Like, I mean, there are a lot of people who are just like, I want a work-life balance and <laughs> I want this and I'm looking for, and it's like, okay. Well, what are you going to give, right? right, What are you going to do? I tell people all the time, work-life balance is like, I'm not saying it's a myth because it can't exist, but it's something you have to pay for with work on the front end. You have to plan, you have to stay ahead, you have to know how to anticipate, and you have to do the things that are required so that you can build the foundation for a um a standardized way of of working so that you can have a balance otherwise you're always going to be pushing a deadline you're always going to be stressed out you're always going to feel like you don't have enough time well you had enough time but you just didn't prepare so i just want i want to work with people who are who are optimistic who are um willing to do the work um willing to have fun doing the work 
and who put, you know, others in the forefront for work. Not, I mean, I know everyone has a personal life. We all do. I mean, I'm a, you know, I have grandchildren, (laughs) you know, and I love them and they're all, they're both under five years old. I wish I could spend every day with them. Um, And I have, you know, kids that are in college and I want to visit them and and make sure that I spend as much time with them as possible. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm dedicated to my, my job. And I feel that um, I want to work with people who are equally committed professionally to the things they do as professionals. Yeah. You articulate that beautifully. And I think, yeah, you shouldn't apologize for no. the expectations you bring as a leader and those that want to work with you should understand that. Is there a similar dynamic with a a board. What is the relationship with your board of directors or key volunteers that you are also working with as a nonprofit leader? Well, one thing. Oh, and I'll answer that in one second. One other thing that I wanted to say about the reason why I want people that are committed is because the the population we serve they're so vulnerable. You know what yes. I mean? And they can yes. and they and they can sense BS. Right? They're not. Yep. You know, they know when people actually care, and so if they don't feel you, they won't believe you when you say you're there to help. It's not for the organization. I want them to put service of others ahead of themselves, a service to themselves. It's because the people we serve have been failed. They have been cheated. They have been exploited and they don't trust people. And we are wanting them to trust us. We're wanting to gain their trust. And the best way to do that is to is for them to feel like you're a hundred percent there for them, right? Such a good point. Yep. Such yeah. a good point. It's it's and mission I, critical, isn't it, for someone to bring that mindset? Absolutely. And so, my board, I, you know, we found I founded the organization with with my friends, and so intentionally, I have been very um, mindful of how I developed the, how we develop the board. You know, when you start a nonprofit, you pick your board. Yeah. First, right. 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 Board. They don't pick you, you pick it. And a lot of people inherit a board. And I think the, the true value in having it happen this way is, you know, I don't have to have a whole bunch of aggressive, angry, unrealistic people around me. You know, <laughs> right, <I mean>? right. <laughs> and some you don't people, need that. You don't need that. You're so lucky. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, if you have an opportunity to turn your board in a way that supports you, they govern you, they make sure you're in compliance and they have account, they they hold you accountable and challenge you. That's all you need. You don't need someone that's trying to make your life miserable because the work is hard enough. Right. And so that's how I approach it. So my board is they they hold my feet to the fire, but they're here in my they're in my corner to support the work so that I can make sure so we can thrive and not have a whole bunch of, um, you know, insanity and power trips to go yes, through. You don't need that for sure. No, and no, well, and maybe last question on this category. And I said, wait, how do you take care of yourself? Again, sensitive to that. The, you are literally committing uh, day and night <laughs> to this organization, this effort, but how do you uh, provide the self-care that I know you need and deserve? You know, I have this thing called Wellness Wednesday. It's real. I, it has a sweatshirt and a t-shirt to go with it. Um, <laughs> on Wednesdays, I literally don't go into office. I still work, in, but the work that I do is remote and it is, I'm trying to clear the path of my energy and give myself time to kind of like deal with me or deal with professional development, like my executive coaches or, you know, 
um, more internal. Is that an earthquake? I just think I felt an earthquake. Oh, no. More internal internal development work um, so that I could be my best self as a leader. You know what I mean? You want to show up whole so that when you are um, approaching the approaching people who are actually on the front lines doing the work that you can be as supportive and empathetic as possible and recharge them. And if you're depleted as a leader, if you have nothing to give and you're worn out and you are hitting your, you know, brick wall of bandwidth or whatever it is that you're going through, if you don't take the time to recharge yourself, whether it's in the middle of the week on a Wednesday or on the weekend, when you have some time, then you are going to burn out and hate your job. And so I don't hate my job. I love my job, even on days where I'm dealing with challenges that I really don't think are necessary, I still can go back and say, I wouldn't want to do this any other way. I built this organization in a way with the culture and um, uh, an ethic and a an environment that I want to see, that I want to live in, right? So I, but I still have to recharge and, and separate myself sometimes so that I can be the best leader I can be. And I've also, I also had, have had lots of life coaches and I believe like I had one really good one that was um, for teaching emotional intelligence so that I could be a more connected leader um, with the team. And instead of an emotional <laughs> wreck. <laughs> yes. Well, it, uh... <laughs> I love that you lift up the power of coaching. And of course, you have provided wonderful advice, again, for the, frankly, the authentic view of nonprofit leadership, both the good and the challenge. Um, Is there anything else, you know, I guess, as final advice, Naisha, that someone listening thinking, all right, I still want to follow your path? Is there any advice you'd offer them? Something to you? And in fact, you said earlier, like, hey, don't forget about learning about the business, the accounting, the legal, the governance. Those are things that clearly have helped you. I wonder if there are other pieces of advice you'd offer our listeners. I would just say, I I mean, I just want to give you a short story. I was talking to a friend of mine who started a nonprofit and she has a very successful nonprofit. And she's just like, you know what? I'm leaving. This is it. It's been 10 years. Wow. I'm done. Um, I want to succeed it to someone else or have a succession plan for someone else um, to lead it. And I think it should be a woman of color and she's not a woman of color, but she's just like talking about how she's ready and she's set and she's, she's like, I'm young. I can just do something else. And I said, okay. I said, but it's just really interesting to me that, you know, you had Steve jobs who was probably kicking and screaming when they were trying to, you know, the board was trying to vote him off if it's the company or fire him as a CEO. I'm like, no one builds a company with all their blood, sweat, and tears and resources to 10 years later, say they're burnout and they're ready to go. I mean, you build the company that you love, that is the way you want it to be. And why should you feel like you can't pay yourself enough? Why should you feel that you have to be, um, having pressure into external or internal pressure as a leader. Like, I mean, I understand that you have to serve your client and that kind of stuff is real, but, but at the end of the day, why would you, why do we feel like at some point we have to leave after 10 years of something that you, you know what I mean? And she just was like, I'm tired. And I was like, that's horrible. You know what I mean? So I would just (laughs) say that how, how, you know, I think that we have to find a way to make sure that we pay our leaders more, pay them 
you know, not to say that you have to be paid a million dollars a year if your nonprofit organization makes, you know, is making $2 million a year. I'm just, I'm saying that you have to pay yourself fairly. You have to be able to pay your staff fairly because you need them to do this work. And I think that funders need to understand that in order for the nonprofits to continue to do the work to solve the problems of today and tomorrow and make the world a better place for you and me, they have to be paid. And um, I just want to encourage leaders to pay yourself what you're worth. Pay yourself, obviously, what your, your organization can afford to pay you, but do not underpay yourself because you will regret it and hate your job, especially there is no profit sharing. There is no profit sharing at the end of this journey. You know what I mean? Not like there is no really, very few of us have a golden parachute that we're going to just glide out of. And very few of us will, after working in a nonprofit environment, will want to transition to the public, to the, you know, to the um, private sector and work at a corporation because we're just not built for that sort of stimulation. So um, after years of working in nonprofit, so I would just encourage you to pay yourself well and um, set yourself up to be a professional organization that people can view in that way, where people can view view it in that way. And, um, you know, just enjoy yourself, enjoy your work and build it in a way that is sustainable so that you can have you know, have the work and continue to serve people for years to come. That's fantastic. And you've been a great advocate for taking care of yourself in every respect, including financially. And yes, I'm glad you raised that point because you're right. Uh, the nonprofit sector is not going to survive or thrive if we have to take a vow of poverty to lead organizations. And that's just not fair to it's you, your family. And, and so thank you for raising that very important point. Um, Naish, if, if I can ask you for a parting gift, you know, this was coming, but love to know if there's a book that's been meaningful to you on your journey that you might recommend to our listeners. Yeah. Um, there's a book that I read a few years ago that I try, I will, I plan to read it again in the next, in November, it's called Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. And, um, I think I read it during the pandemic and it was refreshing to me and it gave me some insight into um, some things that I was going through. It was just weird. I was like, yeah. I have this fictional book and it's still, you know, makes relevant sense to your way. It is yeah. like, it just really hit home. So I plan to read it again so that I could read the next book that was written, um, the 10th insight. Um, so I, I just want to kind of go through it and see what I can find out about myself. I, someone said, if you read it again, you'll learn something new about yourself or learn something new about the people around you. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. Well, I'm delighted to share that with our listeners and, and we will include it in the show notes that I know our listeners will need to check out. In fact, where would you like folks listening to, where can they find out more about you and the great work you're doing? Oh, wow. They can um, check us out on the website, on our website, um, oaklandnatives.org. They can always email me with any questions. I don't know if my email is listed, but I'll give it, I'll share it here with you. It's my name, Naisha at oaklandnatives.org. So I'm um, always open to talk about, you know, the journey and also willing to be a, (laughs) to give some insight or be a listening ear. I find myself uh, being a very a coach type of person. So <laughs> I always want leaders to serve, to succeed and, and to feel like they can thrive in this, in this space. 
So I'm, I'm very happy to be of, of assistance in any way that I can. Well, you, you are a wonderful resource to this podcast, to this episode, and I know you'd be a wonderful resource to those that might want to reach out. So thank you for that offer. And thanks again, Naisha, for joining me on the path. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Naisha as much as I did and came away with some really practical ideas that can guide your leadership journey and frankly help your organization be more effective. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Naisha, about Oakland Natives Give Back, and the other resources she and I discussed, including some great book recommendations. Again, this is episode number 182. And as always, I hope you'll share this episode with just one other person on the nonprofit leadership path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to that podcast page again at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll see the follow button, which will allow you to subscribe to any of the primary podcast platforms. And, of course, don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And if you like this episode, click on the Episodes button at the top of that same podcast page, and you can scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes, or you can search by guest name or topic that is of most interest to you. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.